You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The Greeks had two names for it. There was Hyperborea, land of the giants, a place of peace and plenty where no one hungered, suffered, or died. Or else there was Thule, which the explorer Pythias claimed to have discovered around 320 BC. The Norse referred to two northern lands as well, the underworld, hell, and the land of the gods, Niflheim. And Russia had two names for it too. In the 17th century, they called it Lukamoria, which was somewhat understood to be a mythical place. But in 1809, Russian surveyors claimed to see a giant landmass far off to the north while mapping the new Siberian islands. It became known after the first of them to spot it, Sanikov Land. In 1909, the mysterious land to the north once again gained two names, Crocker Land and Bradley Land. There were some maps that remained agnostic, showing both of the land masses, with the uppercase B-like coast of Bradley Land a hundred or so miles to the north of Crocker Land's inverted sea. But most maps chose a side, one or the other, with the island's discoverers. Those that believed Robert Peary had first reached the North Pole drew Crocker Land, and those that believed Frederick Cook drew Bradley. The exact dimensions of either island beyond the sections of coasts noted by their respective explorers were unknown. Past the B or the inverted C, the lines representing them became dotted. It could have even been that Bradley Land and Crocker Land were part of the same larger landmass, a new and undiscovered continent. In fact, that might have seemed like a likely explanation. Besides the Norse and the Greeks and the Russians, Inuits in Greenland and Alaska both also told tales of a large island to the north. The best science of the time also supported the existence of a yet uncovered northern continent. Recordings taken of tides, currents, and ice flows around the Arctic Circle, Greenland, and Alaska all seem to indicate that there was some large landmass to the north. And yet, if there were a continent to the north of Canada, as it seemed likely there was, it couldn't have been both Crocker Land and Bradley Land, because Cook had seen Bradley and not Crocker, and Peary had seen Crocker, but not Bradley. Any way you cut it, one of them must have been lying. And whoever could get back up to the Arctic could not only confirm once and for all which of the rivals had first reached the North Pole, but they'd also had the chance to tread the last undiscovered country, the lost northern continent. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This is the second half of our piece exploring the explorers who claimed to reach the North Pole. If you haven't heard the first, heed the warning and turn back now. None of this will make much sense without part one. But if you're caught up, let's mush our way onto the ice and onto the terrible conclusion. This week's episode, The Cold Hard Truth, part two. To the Peary Arctic Club, there was never a question of who would be the last great Arctic explorer, the one to confirm Peary's accomplishment and plant his flag on the last great geographic discovery on Earth, Crockerland. It had to be George Borup. 
Borup was the scion of a wealthy family, son of Lieutenant Colonel H.D. Borup, one of Peary's donors who finagled his son's way onto Peary's theoretically successful North Pole expedition. His seriousness was somewhat in question, but not his athleticism, his rugged good looks, and his bottomless charisma. Under Peary, he held the position of Tenderfoot, along with Donald McMillan, a teacher at Worcester Academy. Oh, did you hear that, Massachusetts? Worcester. Worcester. Take that, Tom Brady. Borup and McMillan became the fastest of friends during their time hoplighting for Peary in the Arctic. After peeling off from the main advance, they traveled north alone together, hoping to be ready if Peary needed a rescue. Instead, they were the ones who ended up needing saving. But during their time as a lonely team, they started dreaming about returning to head an expedition of their own, of Crockerland. Macmillan took care of most of the planning for the Crockerland expedition, doing the fine and meticulous logistics work required by the Peary system. But Borup was the public face. He had the money and connections, a Yale education, and a position at the American Museum of Natural History. The money people trusted Borup as a leader, and so did Peary, who treated him as close to an heir apparent as possible. Peary's wife, Joe, accompanied him on his second trek through Greenland in 1891. Joe worked for the Smithsonian as a tallyist, but Peary brought her to be the expedition's nutritionist, which she wasn't. In 1893, Joe gave birth to their first child, Marie, while still in the Arctic, 87 degrees north. She was an instant celebrity, known as Snow Baby, to the world. She was introduced in photos, framed in ice and snow, held in Joe's arms, swaddled in the American flag that was to be planted at the pole. In 1901, when Marie was just eight, Joe wrote a book about her, entitled The Snow Baby, A True Story with Pictures. It really is exactly what it says it is, decked with photos of Marie and the Inuit children she spent much of her time with. Were some of them her half-siblings from Peary's affair with the 16-year-old Alakasua? Probably. After Joe and Marie showed up in Greenland to discover Alakasawa in 1899, Robert no longer liked it when his family came north. But both Joe and Marie did go as far as Sydney in Nova Scotia during Robert's final run for the pole. There, a 14-year-old Marie met 22-year-old George Borup. When Marie departed in Sydney, she left George her photograph, which he treasured the whole journey through. By the time the National History Museum had decided Borup would lead the expedition to Crockerland, Peary had decided he would also marry his daughter. He was perfect for both tasks, they all reckoned. Marie and George kept their relationship quiet, not wanting the press attention or appearance of impropriety. They would see each other just once a month, but George lived for those meetings, to the point that he thought about staying behind, abandoning Crockerland, so as not to miss Marie. He lived for those meetings to the point that it started to make Marie uncomfortable. He would write her daily, mooning, bleeding love letters that begged constantly for affirmation and promises. George was afraid that she was too young for marriage, and afraid that, having been brought up with a father who would disappear for years in the snow, she wouldn't want a husband who would do the same. Marie worried the same things, and she felt overwhelmed by George's constant need. In April of 1912, she called off their monthly meeting. She was considering calling off the whole of their relationship precisely as George feared. His brain was plagued. He was supposed to head off for Crockerland in a few months, a terrifying enough prospect even without the fear of also losing his fiancée. He knew what he needed to calm down. A boy's night out. Or, rather, a boy's canoe trip through Connecticut. He and his Yaley buddy Winthrop Case would make their way together up the coast, alone with each other, the water, and the fresh air that George needed to clear his mind. At 5 p.m. on April 28, 1912, their canoe foundered and flipped. Case hit his head and was knocked unconscious. George attempted to hold his prone friend's head above water while he clung to the upturned boat. A man on shore saw the two struggling out in the distance and jumped in his motorboat to attempt a rescue. By the time he arrived at the canoe, there was no one to be found. George Borup and Winthrop Case were drowned. Their bodies were found in a dragnet the next day. There was plenty of mourning to go around. Robert Peary lost his successor. The American Museum of Natural History lost the head of its expedition. Lieutenant Colonel Borup was heartbroken and suggested he travel to Crockerland in his son's stead. 
Nobody thought that was a good idea, but nobody was sure how to tell him since he held the purse strings on a large part of the operation. But the competition for who was most heartbroken was led by Marie and Donald McMillan. Both of them had lost their best friends. Marie later wrote that she realized after he was gone that she had been afraid to break off their engagement primarily because she wanted to maintain their friendship and didn't know how to. She blamed herself for driving him off to the canoe trip. If she'd only met with him, he'd be alive. If she'd only loved him the way he wanted. Donald's mourning was, somehow, almost as severe. When he'd first met George, he didn't see much to like. He was a made man, born on third place, with a Yale education he didn't earn or appreciate. He floated through life on his family name and his callow charisma. Donald McMillan, on the other hand, lost his father in a shipwreck when he was nine and his mother three years later. He kept himself fed by diving for pennies from the fountains downtown. He worked his way through college and spent years as a schoolteacher. He was severe and studious. Maybe most importantly, Donald took the Arctic very seriously. Studying and reading about the place, its people, and explorers was his one extracurricular obsession. Macmillan only got on Peary's radar by the strangest and most harrowing of happenstance. In July of 1904, Macmillan was summering at Buston's Island, Maine. One night when he and a friend were walking along the beach, he noticed some splashing out on the water. They ran to a nearby rowboat, put in, and headed as fast as they could to the site. There, through the darkness, they saw a number of people struggling around an overturned yacht. They got them all into the boat, then McMillan asked the critical question, how many of you were there? Seven. But they'd only rescued six. McMillan dove into the water, then under it. In the dark sea, he found a boy caught in the ship's rigging. He cut him loose, carried him to the surface, got him on the boat, and gave CPR. But it was too late. There was nothing to be done. Still, McMillan was a hero. Thanks to his quick thinking and fast action, six lives were saved from drowning. And then, the next night, it happened again. He was at home when he heard screams from the water. He once more jumped into a small boat and rowed towards the din. He soon found an overturned rowboat with two women and a man clinging to it. He saved all three. Friggin' hero! Now McMillan was a near celebrity all around Casco Bay. Soon, news of his twin rescues reached Eagle Island, home to Robert Peary. McMillan stayed at Buston's Island because he'd spent his boyhood summers there at an adventure camp. Peary sent for the famous hero in hopes that he'd teach Robert Peary Jr., his oldest son, how to swim and hunt. When McMillan showed up at Eagle Island, he bowled Peary over with his encyclopedic knowledge of the Arctic and previous expeditions there. All that to get a place as a tenderfoot on the journey to the North Pole. Borup, in contrast, only came along because his father wanted him to and petitioned Peary to let him on board. But living together in tight quarters on the Roosevelt, at Etta, trekking through the snow and the cold, sharing igloos and tents, they were like war buddies. They shared their deepest fears, hopes, and sadnesses with one another. Macmillan was surprised to find out one sober, drunken night that Borup had lost his mother when he was a boy, too. Yet, more than anything, they bonded over the ice. I think the most difficult thing about telling stories of the Arctic, at least as someone who's never been there, is getting inside the appeal. It's so barren, so uncomfortable, so white. Chicago can get pretty friggin' cold, and I don't see any romance about that. In fact, if I ever leave the city, it'll be the same reason most others do. The winters. So, what is it that Borup and McMillan and Peary and Cook and so many others were so possessed by. Some of it surely was the pace and difficulty of life, which gave such immediate value to experience. After he got back to New York, Borup wrote about how being able to catch a train to get from here to there was anticlimactic. In the most populous and exciting city in America, where the world's money moved, where art was created on every corner, Borup felt bored. Some of the largest structures ever built by man surrounded him, and compared to the mountains he'd returned from, he found them trivial. The love began for almost all of those who fell in love, though, with the ice. On the water, passing above Labrador, Macmillan and Borup shared their first iceberg together. Towering, 
like a massive floating stone held aloft by some aquatic atlas. As the sun shone upon it, it glowed an unworldly blue, like somehow a cornflower fire was burning within its thick, cold depths. Borup might have only been along to please his father up until that point, but after the iceberg, he fell in love, along with Macmillan. Maybe even with Macmillan. Donald Macmillan, now without that love, that best friend, the man who he promised to reach Crockerland with, but also the man who had, at least somewhat undeservingly, been thrust into the position of leadership. With Borup gone, the higher-ups weren't sure what to do about the expedition. Surely they couldn't leave it in the hands of this ex-school teacher. This gave Macmillan a sort of peevish jealousy. Robert had believed in him. Why didn't the people who believed in Robert? And anyway, the promise, the vision that Macmillan had in his head was to reach Crockerland with his friend. It wouldn't be the same now. Now he'd have to do it for him. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. E.O. Hovey was the curator of geology at the American Museum of Natural History and in charge of overseeing funding and approval for the expedition. Hovey had hired Borup to the museum, encouraged him, tutored him, shaped him. Just as Peary had thought Borup could be his successor, Hovey thought the same. Hovey couldn't imagine Macmillan leading the way, but after a few months trying to find someone else or even to cancel the whole thing, he gave in. Donald Macmillan would be in charge at Crockerland. But Hovey would do what he could to futz with things up until then. Macmillan dropped out of graduate school at Harvard to devote himself full-time to planning. But he frequently found his ideas undercut by Hovey, who made hiring and purchasing decisions without his approval. Some of these really irked Macmillan. For instance, Hovey chartered the ship that would carry the crew to Greenland, the SS Diana, a 40-year-old converted seal hunting ship with a Danish crew. Macmillan thought the ship was too old, too slow, too weak, and too expensive. He said the crew didn't speak English and drank too much. But Hovey had his way. Macmillan didn't disagree with every decision, though. When he heard that Hovey had hired a Navy ensign to serve as the company's engineer and physicist without even introducing them first, Macmillan was furious. Then he met him, Fitzhugh Green. Macmillan was thunderstruck from the second he laid eyes on Fitz. He was the spitting image of George Borup, but younger, even more athletic, handsome, and effervescent. He kept sober, played football, ran track, studied geology, meteorology, navigation. He grew up hunting, fishing, and camping. And he was charming as all get out. Fitzhugh Green heard about the Crockerland expedition shortly after Borup's death and did everything in his power to get on board. He was driven, ambitious, and he saw Crockerland as a sure way to heroism and fame. But once he got into a room with Hovey, he didn't need to do much. He was so perfectly built for the task, and so uncannily like the beloved Borup, that Hovey fell for him as quickly as Macmillan. Fitzhugh Green was, in short, perfect, and everybody knew it. What they didn't know is that inside his secret mind, Fitzhugh Green was a more complicated soul than his outward, ebullient attitude betrayed. His ambition was tinged by jealousy and malcontent, his self-confidence by self-loathing, his sociability by deep and disturbing angst. While he walked the world a happy and stable chunk of chiseled marble, his personal diary was filled up with ruminations on death, suicide, and murder. But again, whose isn't? Probably no big deal. Forget I said anything about it. In addition to Fitz, there were five other men hired for the main party. Walter Ekbla, or Eck, from the University of Illinois, was brought on by Hovey to serve as chief geologist and botanist. Also out of U of I was Maurice C. Tankery, or Tank, a daring young zoologist. Macmillan brought on his travel companion and good friend Jonathan Jot Small 
contact as cook, carpenter, and mechanic, along with Jerome Lee Allen, a Navy radio operator out of Atlanta who was given the title chief electrician. For ship surgeon, McMillan hired Harrison Hal Hunt, a humongous Mainer, six foot three, 190 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. He was Thor, but with a scalpel instead of a hammer. With the team together, they boarded the Diana out of New York on July 2nd, 1913. With the help of his fearless crew, Fitz, Eck, Tank, Jot, Hal, and Allen, Donald Mac McMillan was at last on his way to Crockerland. Everything was going to plan. Then the captain got drunk and ran Diana into the rocks. In September of 1897, Minnick arrived in New York City, seven years old, with his father, Kissuk, and four other Inuit from Edda. They had been brought by Robert Peary to be living exhibits for the American Museum of Natural History. For a year, they would live in New York, be studied for their culture, their language, their bodies. They lived in the basement, where they were kept off of public display, officially, for they were certainly viewed by quite a few museum donors off the books. All six contracted tuberculosis almost immediately, and within a couple months, four of them had died, including Kissick. On Minnick's young insistence, Kissick was given a proper Inuit burial, his body covered in stones, laid to rest in the middle of Manhattan at sunset. The other child who survived was returned to Greenland, but not Minnick. Instead, William Wallace, chief curator at the museum, adopted him. For the next three years, Minnick Wallace attended private school, played baseball and golf, learned to swim and ride horseback. Then, William Wallace was caught taking bribes and fired from his position at AMNH. Morris Jessup, president of the museum, also cut off funding for Minnick. Less than three years later, Minnick's stepmother died, and William sent his son to live with relatives. But Minnick stayed with him, in poverty, rambling around New York. Minnick was 16 when he heard some classmates snickering at him. They told him they had just seen his father, Kissick, at the museum. He came home confused and upset. What did they mean? He had seen his father buried. Hadn't he? You have to imagine William Wallace was ashamed of himself, afraid of what the truth would do to his beloved adopted son and to their relationship. It certainly doesn't make up for anything, for his part in stealing a boy from his people, his part in displaying human beings at a museum, his part in faking the burial of Minnick's father, dressing up a log in clothes while Kissick's remains were quietly carted off to Bellevue to be stripped of their flesh, bleached, and put on permanent display before a placard for visitors to gawk at. It doesn't come close to making up for any of it, but at least we can say of William Wallace that that day, he told Minnick the truth. In 1906, Minnick Wallace wrote two demands. The first was in a full-page newspaper ad addressed to museum director Herman Carey Bumpus. It read, Give me my father's body. The other was to Robert Peary, who was then in the final planning stages of his last race for the pole. It read, in part, You found room enough to bring me here. Why can't you take me back? Both Bumpus and Peary refused. Three years later, when he returned triumphant to the States, Peary relented and made arrangements to bring Minnick back to Greenland. Minnick found Etta more foreign even than New York. By the time he returned there at the age of 19, he'd forgotten his mother tongue and didn't have the skills or exposure to thrive in the harsh climate. Peary told the press he had sent the boy home laden with gifts, but in truth, he was given nothing more than a set of clothes and a first aid kit. But he was welcomed by the community, like the return of the forcibly prodigal son. The child of Kissick was back. He relearned the language Inuktun, learned to be one of the community's finest hunters, was married to a young woman, Aranguk. On paper, things were beginning to work out, finally, for Minnick Wallace. But he still felt apart, as he always did. Once from the Americans in New York, now from the Inuit in Edda. He was neither one. He and Aranguk didn't get along. He spent more and more time out on the ice, by himself, thinking about his other home and whether he had given it up too hastily. He didn't know what to do. 
what world he belonged in. I noted last episode that it's very difficult to properly tell the stories of the Inuit around these events, and that's a truth that will only become more inconvenient as we go forward. But Minnick Wallace is the exception to that rule. He has been written about time and time and time again, usually by white dudes like myself. There are easily several reasons we can come up with to explain this. Minnick, unlike most of his Greenland brethren, could read and write in English, and much of his story took place in the United States, where it was of contemporaneous interest to the press and public, at least for a while. And his story is so especially and fantastically unspeakable that it sort of begs to be told, perhaps especially by the culture responsible for most of his suffering a hundred years out. Is it an act of contrition or of distancing? A way to look back and say, look how much better we are now. I don't know. Probably a mixture, leaning heavily on the latter. Then there's the other obvious reason why Minnick's story is so appealing. As an allegory, it speaks to everyone. Minnick Wallace, who even in name stood astride a hard border, who felt he had no home, no country, who lived in two worlds and belonged in neither. That's a feeling everyone knows. Or, I should say, it's a feeling everyone thinks they know. Because who could possibly know what it felt like to be Minnick Wallace? Not a symbol for incommensurable otherness, but the incommensurable other himself. In any honest accounting, we must conclude that his story belongs to neither American nor Inuit. His story is an impermeably solitary one, alien to anyone who wasn't Minnick Wallace. Alone beyond loneliness, a foreign island to himself, beyond the reach of any ambassador. So no one can say what Minnick Wallace thought when, four years after he'd returned to the land of his birth, Donald McMillan showed up for one last great Western incursion into the North. Mac, Fitz, Eck, Tank, Jot, Hal, and Allen landed in Etta in August of 1913, not on the Diana, which that Danish drunk had straight up wrecked, but on another ship chartered in a pinch by the American Museum of Natural History, the Eric. Almost immediately, Minnick Wallace approached Mac. Do you need a guide? A guide who spoke perfect Inupton and English, who understood the needs and customs of both people? Minnick's offer was a welcome island of fortune for Macmillan in a sea of roiling troubles. The drunken shipwreck incident had put the expedition behind. Jerome Allen had been brought on mostly on his promise that he could get two-way radio set up between the base camp and Canadian mainland. He would build an antenna tower 150 feet tall to reach Labrador, he'd said. Hovey had been impressed and excited by the idea. Fitz Green had vouched for him, making the prospect all the better. But Macmillan was skeptical from the beginning. Of the whole team, he was the only one who had ever stepped foot in the Arctic, and he understood that the supposedly simple task of erecting a humongous radio tower in the frozen north under pounding winds, limited visibility, and bitter cold was not going to be the cakewalk his tenderfoots envisioned. Allen quickly gave up on his radio tower, but made multiple attempts to fly antenna-laden kites that might temporarily serve the same purpose. They never worked either, but it gave Jerome Allen something to do to pass the time, which would prove pretty honk and useful. The team had arrived in Etta in late summer, August, with a plan to set up a large building for base camp. Then they would acclimate to their surroundings, start tiptoeing north to place supply caches and build igloos, take some time to study the geology, geography, zoology, and sociology around Etta, and then, when the winter ice had reached its thickest, they could finally jump off for Crockerland. The camp was easy enough to build, a squat 35 by 35 foot building subdivided into eight rooms for dwelling, planning, cooking. Allen never got the radio working, but he did get electricity flowing through a diesel generator when it wasn't too cold to run. On Christmas Eve, the men dug out a special dinner prepackaged as a gift from the American Museum of Natural History. On the menu was roast turkey, cranberry sauce, mock turtle soup, plum pudding with brandy sauce, cocktails, coffee, and Cuban cigars. They shared their incredible plenty with the Inuits and all partied long into the night. It would be the last great creature comfort most of them would know 
for nearly four years. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness? I know, for me, the sameness of the days is getting me pretty itchy. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe, private, convenient online environment. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling that you can access at any time and within 24 hours of signing up. Message your counselor whenever you need to, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, and more affordably than through traditional counseling. And if you ever want to change counselors, you can do so easily and at no charge for any reason. BetterHelp is available worldwide and has licensed professional counselors specializing in many areas which may not be accessible to you locally, including depression, family conflicts, anxiety, grief, and relationship issues. If you'd like to start living a happier life today, BetterHelp is the confidential, convenient, professional, affordable way to do it. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The first attempt for Crockerland barely made it out of the gate. On February 7, 1914, a large party set off, but in just a few days of cohabitating, the Inuits began to catch the diseases of the Americans, flu and mumps, and the whole group had no choice but to turn back. They re-arrived in Edda on the 17th, just 10 days after they'd departed. For nearly a month, the Inuit convalesced while Macmillan tried to work out another plan. The expedition was running out of time, if they didn't get out by early spring, the pack ice would begin to melt and passage would become impossible. Then they'd be facing the difficult choice of whether to call the whole thing off or spend an extra year in Edda. Eventually, Macmillan made the decision. 
he'd adopt a more streamlined version of the Peary system. A small group would make their way out across to Ellesmere Island and out onto the Polar Sea. They would begin with just Mac, Fitz, Eck, and seven of the Inuit guides, including Minnick Wallace, Etukshuk, who had accompanied Cook on his polar run, and Pyoktuk, the husband of Alakasawa, with whom Robert Peary had had his affair years earlier, when she was only 16. The ten left Etta by dog sled on March 11th. The going was tough, which is obviously a hilarious understatement, but it was even harder than it should have been. The weather was rough, the temperature hovered around negative 50, and some of the supply caches had been lost or depleted. The crew carried between them three and 4,000 pounds worth of supplies on their sleds, which drained the dogs of strength. A weekend, they reached the Beitstad Glacier, more than 800 feet in elevation, with a 55-foot sheer cliff at its base. There was no way, thought McMillan. It was an impassable obstacle, an unmovable object. The Beitstad Glacier stretched for 200 miles in either direction and five stories tall, like some straight-up Game of Thrones shit. That was it. The adventure was over. It was, Mac said, impossible. The Inuits saw it differently. Three of them took axes and picks and began to scale the frozen face. Within a few hours, they hadn't just reached the top, but cut out a rough sort of ice staircase for their doughy American employers and set up a rope and pulley system. The next day was spent heaving the sleds, food, supplies, and dogs, one at a time, up over the glacier. Mac and Fitz were ecstatic and amazed. Eck wasn't able to muster up any excitement. His feet were becoming overcome by frostbite. The Inuit, too, were less than elated. They'd gone about the climb with a loud and happy pride, but once everybody was on top and hunkered down for the evening, they began to talk. Pyukatuk was the only person there who'd ever been beyond Ellesmere Island before, and he painted a less-than-rosy picture of what was to come. That night, Minnick Wallace told Donald McMillan that he wanted to go home. Why Minnick decided to turn back is one of the juicier questions about this whole tale. Initially, McMillan explained it by saying Minnick was lazy and weak and didn't like the work. There's some indication that Minnick didn't care for Mac either, that as the week on the ice had gone by, he'd reminded him more and more of Robert Peary, the man who had stolen him from Etta, led to the death of his father, and refused to return him home. Then there is the third explanation that Minnick had been trying for a while to sleep with Avalu, but her husband, Tatsyonkwak, kept getting in the way. Under this theory, Minnick realized that if he returned to Edda, he'd have Avalu to himself, since Tatsyonkwak was also on the expedition. It would seem like the most far-fetched and petty rationale, except that not long after Minnick turned back, Tatsyonkwak disappeared back towards Edda too, without a word to anyone. And then there were eight. Eck was the next to peel off. Just two days later, Mac told the University of Illinois zoologist that his feet were too bad and he needed to return. Kajutuk had accompanied Peary both on his 1909 pole run and the 1897 expedition on which the famed explorer had lost his toes. Two days earlier, Kajutuk had told McMillan that Eckblaw's feet looked as bad as Peary's had. Mac had waved him off, saying it wasn't as bad as that. But now, X limp was slowing things down, and since it no longer served Mac's interests, he agreed that he should return to Etta. Maybe Minnick was on to something. Maybe Douglas McMillan was turning into Robert Peary after all. With Kajutuk accompanying Ekbla, the team was down to six. They plowed their way slowly northwest in a constant seesaw between running through their food, nearly starving, and then stumbling upon caribou or muskox, feasting, running through their food, and nearly starving again. They would get lost in the snow, nearly freeze in the cold, and reunite just in time to build igloos. On April 10th, they spotted Cape Thomas Hubbard, but were unable to find the trail that Peary had followed or the stone carn he had built to mark it. Supplies were dwindling, the dogs were exhausted, and the way forward was unclear. From here on out, there would be no caribou or muskox. There was no longer any way of finding fresh food. So, McMillan decided it was time to lose some more weight. Akiak and Nukapionkwak had run themselves ragged a week before, doubling back over the glacier to retrieve a stash of heating oil. Mac cut them loose, sending them back to Etta behind Ek and Kajatuk. 
And then there were four. Mac, Fitz, Atukshuk, and Pyoktuk. It was April 14th, 1914. The next week was spent on the sea ice, heading west on the lookout for their goal, which should have been near. The ice was unsteady, the snowpack high and uneven. They could see no signs of Crockerland. On the night of the 20th, they made an igloo, and the four men slept packed together like December-born puppies. In the morning, Fitz was the first to step outside. Almost instantaneously, he came sprinting back, threw his head into the igloo, and screamed, We have it! Donald McMillan, Fitzhugh Green, Atukshuk, and Pyoktuk fell over themselves, exiting the igloo, running through the snow, and climbing for a nearby mound. There it was, Crockerland. McMillan wrote, Great heavens, what a land! Hills! Valleys, snow-capped peaks extending through at least 120 degrees of the horizon. Pyoktuk was less excitable. He was the only one who'd been nearly this far out before, so Mac asked him which way they should go to reach Crockerland. Pyoktuk stood silently, watching the island for a few minutes, before replying, Pujak. It meant, roughly, mist. Pyoktuk believed that Crockerland was some sort of mirage or illusion. Fitz and Mac were sure it was real. Atukshuk was agnostic. So they continued on for five days in the direction of the far-off continent of Crockerland. Very far off. Statically far off. No matter how far they traveled, they didn't get any closer. On April 24th, Mac was forced to concede that Pyoktuk had been right. What they had seen was a Fata Morgana, a mirage formed by light being bent through multiple envelopes of thermally inverted air. Crockerland was, as Macmillan put it, a will-o'-wisp. It should have been the darkest day of the journey. Donald Macmillan hadn't proved Dr. Frederick Cook was lying about making it to the pole. In fact, he'd only made the case harder on Robert Peary. What the hell had the old man seen? Had he seen anything? How could he have let so many people sink so much time and money and risk into finding an island that didn't exist? Donald McMillan would never get to plant a flag in Crockerland. He wouldn't be known as the man who discovered the last forgotten continent. Worst of all, there would be no Borup Bay or Mount Borup. He wouldn't get the chance to put his fallen friend on the map where he belonged. It should have been the darkest day of the journey. But it wasn't. Choking back the disappointment, Macmillan gave orders to turn around for Etta. They had traveled a hundred miles over the polar ice and found nothing, no sign of Crockerland. Just a day and a half into the trek back, that polar ice began to break up. Spring had come to the Arctic. The way back became confused and dangerous. The ground shifted, clanged, rumbled, and broke. Open sea would rise up out of nowhere and cut off your path like a black cat. When the four finally reached dry land again at Axel Heiberg Island, the weather was even worse than usual. A terrible whiteout blizzard. None of the men were sure which way would be fastest back to Etta, and Mac was still harboring some small hope that the expedition might accomplish something. So he ordered that they split into two groups. Macmillan and Atukshuk would head north, towards where Peary's Karn should be, and try to find Cape Colgate again. Fitz and Pyoktuk would head south and try to find a different Karn, left by the Norwegian explorer Otto Sverdrup. Then they'd all turn around and meet back here in three days. Mac and Atukshuk barely made it a step. They spent a few hours of their first day together just trying to find the igloo they'd made, and the rest of it sitting inside, drinking tea. The next day, they tried to make a run for Cape Colgate, but the winds and snow were still blowing. They got lost, got separated, and again struggled to find the igloo. Eight hours later, they were back inside, drinking tea again. Mac decided they would just camp out and wait for Fitz and Pyoktuk to return. There was no sign of them the third day, or the fourth, or the fifth. Finally, on the sixth, with the weather somewhat cleared, Macmillan spotted a dog sled in the distance. Just one, with one rider. It was Fitzhugh Green. He looked rattled. 
He alighted the sled, approached McMillan, and said, Mac, this is what is left of your Southern Division. The storm that had been so tough on Mac and Atukshuk was positively brutal on Fitz and Pyogtok. They ran out of food quickly, were separated multiple times. In the first day, Fitz's dog team lay down and refused to move any further. Pyokhtok made an igloo, and the two took shelter, but couldn't get their stove working in the wet. The snow piled 15 feet on top of them in one night, covering their air hole so that Pyokhtok had to dig them out as Fitz passed out from lack of oxygen. The biggest problem, though, was Fitzhugh Green himself. In the panic and cold, he quickly grew paranoid. He became convinced Pioktok was out to get him. When the storm let up, they discovered that Fitz's dogs had been buried and died. Fitz blamed Pioktok. Pioktok, for his part, just wanted to go back. He hadn't thought the split teams were a good idea in the first place, and now he was very much ready to give up the mission and double back to the rendezvous. Fitz, though, wouldn't have it. He wanted to complete his mission. He roared at him. Who did he think was in charge? Did he think they could just go back because Pyokhtok wanted to? No, he said, we will continue south. Pyokhtok saw no more point in arguing. He readied his dog team and pointed north. End of debate. He advised Fitz to ride on his sled, but Fitz refused. He would walk in the tracks, thank you very much. Pyokhtok got moving with Fitz following behind, or trying to, at least. The visibility was poor, and trudging along with nothing to entertain him but his grumbling and paranoid inner monologue was doing him no good. He knew Pyokhtok was trying to lose him. He accused him of veering off the trail to duck him, which made no sense at all, seeing as Pyokhtok's sled was making the trail. Pyokhtok again implored Fitz to get on the sled with him, and again Fitz refused. So, they continued on once more. Fitz began to fall behind as the blizzard picked up. He interpreted this as Pyokhtok abandoning him to die. Fitz picked up speed, came up behind the sled, and grabbed Pyokhtok's rifle. Stay behind me, he demanded. What happened next is difficult to say. Maybe Pyokhtok ran. Maybe they got separated in the blizzard. Maybe Fitz was just plain paranoid. Or maybe... He was looking for an excuse. What isn't difficult to say is that Fitzhugh Green murdered Pyokhtok. He told a few different versions of how exactly this happened. In some tellings, he fired a warning shot first. And when Pyokhtok refused to stop, he shot him in the back. Once. Or else twice. Or else twice, and then, when he caught up to the sledge once more in the head. Then, he lashed the Inuit's dead body to the front of the sled, turned the dogs around, and returned to the igloo, where he unloaded the body, brought it with him into the shelter, and went to sleep. He awoke several hours later from a nightmare, in which the dead man was keeping him from a table full of cake. When he opened his eyes, there were Pyokhtoks staring back at him. He dragged his victim out of the igloo, buried him in snow behind an ice floe. Then, he leashed up Pyokhtok's dogs and started back towards Donald McMillan. He explained to Mac his side of things, that the Inuit had tried to abandon him, to kill him, in effect, and that he had no choice but to shoot. But his recollection of the event was already confusing and hard to follow. In the end, McMillan decided the only sensible explanation was, to quote his journal, deliberate murder. But he couldn't afford for a Tukshuk to know nor any of the others in the community at Etta. He needed Etta to get home, and he needed a Tukshuk to get to Etta. Fitz made up a story, said that Pyokhtuk had been buried in an avalanche that had miraculously spared him. Mac went along. A Tukshuk, well, again, it's difficult to tell a Tukshuk side. Did he buy Fitz's tale, or did he pretend to for fear of what might happen to him otherwise? It's impossible to say. The three of them packed up and hauled out, arriving back in Etta on May 21st, 1914. McMillan explained to everyone what had happened to Pyokhtok, which is to say, he furthered the lie about the avalanche. Ek and Tank found out the truth, though, 
and Mac enjoined them to keep it to themselves until they were back in America. That would still be a while. Once the team had reconvened and learned the disappointment of Crockerland, they split off into smaller groups to try to salvage some of the journey, researching the weather, geology, animals, and plants of northern Greenland. In August, Eck and Tank made the 120-mile journey to a Danish trading post. They expected to be greeted as welcome fresh faces, but instead were seen with horror and frustration. The Danish were almost out of supplies. They were already half-starving. And now they had two more mouths to feed. Two months later, Eck and Tank were rescued by Macmillan and brought back to Edda by the expedition's motorboat. In December, Mac ordered Eck and Tank to travel south again with him so that they could get a message out telling the museum that Crockerland was a bust and they needed a rescue ship sent. This time, they were caught in a blizzard, got lost, ran through their supplies, and had to resort to eating the weakest dogs in their teams. Tank eventually got out the SOS, but lost his big toes to frostbite in the process. The message reached E.O. Hovey in the summer of 1915, more than a year after Mac, Fitz, and Atukshuk had returned to Edda. Hovey chartered the George H. Cluett to rescue Macmillan and his men. The benefits of using the Cluett were that it was cheap and... No, that's, that's what it was. It was cheap, and that was all Hovey cared about. But there was very good reason it was cheap. It was strictly sail-powered, no engine, and it wasn't classed for ice-breaking. So, the SS George H. Cluett was trapped in the Arctic ice, several hundred miles south of Edda, with E.O. Hovey aboard. He had expected a two-month journey. Instead, he got two years. The summer after Hovey set off, the American Museum of Natural History chartered another rescue ship, the Danmark, now saddled with the job of returning two crews worth of stranded victims. It, too, got locked in the ice. The Crockerland team broke up like a millennial boy band. Some of them did scientific work, most of them eventually gave up and tried to sledge their way home. The years passed by. On January 11, 1917, a group of Inuit arrived at Edda from the south. From them, McMillan first learned that there was a war going on, World War I. It had already been going for three and a half years. It took until the summer for a rescue to finally come through. The SS Neptune arrived in July and deposited the stranded men in Nova Scotia on August 24, 1917. They had been gone more than four years. It wasn't all for naught. Between them, the men of the Crockerland expedition made some remarkable finds about the geology, vegetation, and settlements of the Arctic. Their exhibits are scattered around museums across the United States, from Maine to New York to Illinois to Wisconsin. But the main thrust of their mission, to discover Crockerland, vindicate Robert Peary, and demolish Frederick Cook's claim at the North Pole, had been an abject failure. Robert Peary was so famous and influential that nobody even cared that he'd led a whole bunch of people out onto the polar ice for four years on a wild goose chase. The assumption was that he had seen the same sort of Fata Morgana that Macmillan's team did, even though Mac himself couldn't understand how an explorer as experienced as Peary could have been fooled. In fact, he was not. In 1988, Peary's original diary was released into the National Archives. It showed that Peary had never seen anything like what he later called Crockerland. He had invented it out of whole cloth in hopes that naming such a fabulous discovery after George Crocker would tempt his benefactor into giving him more money. It didn't work. By the time Peary had invented Crockerland, its namesake was sinking all of his philanthropic funding into relief for the great San Francisco earthquake. So, to recap, he allowed Macmillan and his team to risk their lives in pursuit of something that he, one, knew was a lie, two, knew would be discovered as a lie, and three, hadn't performed its function and was of no value to him at all. What an amazing dickhead. Let's get back to our MDQ here, our central mystery. Who was the first to make it to the North Pole? Donald McMillan had set out to disprove Frederick Cook's claim. He hadn't done that, but had he done the opposite? At first glance, the disappearance of Crockerland seems like good evidence that Cook had made it to the Pole. But, I hope you'll remember, Cook didn't just say that he hadn't seen Crockerland, 
He also said he had seen a new honking island of his own, Bradley Land, and he'd provided photos of it. But in the 1950s, aerial reconnaissance showed that there was no Bradley Land either. And a Tukshuk, who was on the voyage with Cook, later said the photos provided were fake. Just like his photos of Mount Denali, he'd taken them from an already discovered easier location, Axel Heiberg Island, not too far from where Mac, Fitz, Atukshuk, and Pyoktuk had split up. All right, so if Cook didn't reach the pole, did Peary? Probably not. If Peary's team made it to the pole, it was Matthew Henson who probably reached it first, but it's not terribly likely that either of them did. Peary never let Henson see his measurements or sextant and seemed to him rather cagey about it. Not to mention, Peary's map of their travels is pretty unbelievable, showing them making a V-line right to the pole at tremendous, almost superhuman speed. I should be clear, it's entirely possible that Peary or Cook, or even both of them, did reach the pole. And there are still supporters of all three of those positions today. But it's just not very likely. And if neither of them, who did first reach it? Well, in 1926, Richard Byrd and Floyd Bennett flew there, which would be kind of a bummer of an ending, but luckily for us, Byrd's data suggests that they might have screwed it up too. So that brings us to later in 1926, when Roald Amundsen overflew the pole in a rigid airship called the Norge. You may remember Amundsen as the guy who ate seal meat with Frederick Cook when the Danish expedition got stuck in the Antarctic, but he was also the first person to reach the South Pole and to traverse the Northwest Passage. So, if neither Cook, Peary, nor Bird actually made it to the North Pole, then he got the triple crown of really cold, miserable travel. But Amundsen didn't land at the pole. He didn't step foot on it, let alone plant a flag. The first person to actually 100% for sure reach the North Pole by land was Ralph Plaisted, a Minnesota insurance salesman who made it to the top of the world by snowmobile in 1968. Much less grand. At the time, though, it was Robert Peary who emerged victorious. Even though Crockerland had been a crock, nobody cared. He was assumed to have been the first to get to the pole and celebrated as an international hero. At nearly the same time Donald McMillan and George Borup were planning the expedition, Peary was elevated to the rank of rear admiral and on the same day, retired. He spent the rest of his years being lauded with praise, acclaim, and promotion, serving as president of the Explorers Club and the Aero Club of America. Matthew Henson, the African-American valet who served for years as Peary's number two and best friend, quickly found himself kicked out into the cold when he wrote a memoir entitled A Negro Explorer at the North Pole and went on a lecture tour promoting it. Peary hadn't approved Henson to speak out on his own, so he was cut off and attacked by his friends in the media. Teddy Roosevelt came to his defense in a quiet sort of way, offering him a position at the U.S. Customs House, now known as the National Museum of the American Indian, where he worked for the rest of his life. He died in the Bronx in 1955. He was 88. By then, he had been honored by the Explorers Club, the U.S. Congress, and Presidents Truman and Eisenhower. In 1988, he and his wife Lucy's bodies were disinterred and laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery, near Rear Admiral Robert Peary. Several Inuit from the abandoned settlement of Etta were in attendance for the ceremony. They represented Henson's only living descendants. Both Peary and Henson's bloodlines continue on among the North Greenland Inuit. After the polar spotlight, Frederick Cook moved to Fort Worth, where he promoted oil companies that turned out to be fraudulent, just like his photos. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison. He wasn't released until 1930. Roald Amundsen visited him in jail several times, saying that he had saved his life from scurvy. Dr. Frederick Cook died on August 5, 1940, from a cerebral hemorrhage. On his deathbed, Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued him a full pardon. Donald Mac McMillan never lost love for the Arctic. Even with all the obvious prizes claimed, he continued traveling and exploring there for the rest of his life. 
He built the SS Bowdoin, the only American schooner made specifically for Arctic exploration, and with it launched several notable journeys. In 1921, he set up the first wireless radio station from the Arctic. In 1926, he discovered signs that Vikings had landed in Nova Scotia 500 years before Columbus. He was well into his 60s when America entered World War II, but he volunteered both himself and his ship for service. Once the war was over, he went right back to exploring the Arctic. His last voyage took place in 1957, when he was 82 years old. He died in 1970. Macmillan's pal and travel companion, Jot Small, made himself busy during the expedition as the mission's cook. Everyone said he was a bad chef even for the North Pole, but after he returned to the mainland, he opened a restaurant in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where people were apparently easier to please than Arctic explorers who were literally starving. He died in 1952. Jerome Lee Allen spent the rest of his life back in the Navy, serving through the end of World War I, the interwar period, all the way through World War II, and only retiring in 1947. He reached the rank of captain, commanding several Navy vessels, including the USS Gilmer, a flagship destroyer, and then serving as the senior communications instructor at the Army Navy Staff College. He died in 1955. Maurice Tank Tankery, who got out the first message requesting help and lost his toes in the process, immediately moved to Manhattan, Kansas, where he became an associate professor of entomology. The next year he married, and the next year had a daughter. He returned to his real academic love, apiary, quitting teaching to become a professional beekeeper, at which he is considered one of the great 20th century pioneers. Harrison Hal Hunt set up as a general practitioner and medical examiner in Maine, living until 1967, when he died of pneumonia at age 89. Walter Eck Eckblaw became a research associate with the American Museum of Natural History, then returned to school, earning his PhD from Clark University in 1926. He spent the next 25 years at Clark in Worcester, Massachusetts, teaching geography. He died on June 7, 1949, and was brought back to be buried in southern Illinois. When recounting the killing of Pyoktuk in his later years, he described it as one of the darkest and most deplorable tragedies in the annals of Arctic exploration. Yet, nothing was done about it. Macmillan told Hovey and the museum about the murder, and it was decided it would be best to keep it quiet. The cover-up failed. Another Arctic explorer, Nude Ramunson, told the world what Fitz had done. But it still didn't matter. Pioktok was just an Eskimo. Fitzhugh Green was never held to account and never gave sufficient or honest explanation for what he'd done. He remained in the Navy, elevated to the rank of commander. He did everything he could to pull a government paycheck without actually serving, and when he was finally ordered to take command of a ship in the Pacific, he chose instead to retire, telling his father that he couldn't bear to live, quote, without a couple of bathrooms, a car, a cook, and so on. He went through a string of barely legitimate businesses, wrote a string of barely readable books, and ran through a couple of barely livable marriages. In 1933, he married Marjorie Durant, daughter of General Motors founder William Durant. From the outside, they seemed to live a charming life, traveling the world on the GM dime, drinking, partying, and hobnobbing with celebrities. But in secret, both Marjorie and Fitz had become addicted to heroin. Marjorie was arrested for possession in 1947. Between Fitz and her father, they were able to get her a deal at an early version of a rehab clinic, but the cops were on the scent of something larger. Fitz and Marjorie had been running drugs to get drugs and were arrested for the period equivalent of trafficking. Marjorie was spared the trial because she was considered too mentally unstable. Fitz pled guilty to violating the Narcotics Act and was given five years probation. Within a month, he was dead probably because of opiate and alcohol abuse, although a family friend said he had fallen down the stairs during an argument with Marjorie after she walked in on him screwing around with the nurse. After the Crockerland expedition, Minnick Wallace decided to return to the United States. He got there ahead of Macmillan in 1916. He traveled around New England doing odd jobs, eventually finding good work at a lumber yard in North Stratford, New Hampshire. The owner, Afton Hall, took Minnick in. It was a good life, 
honest wages for honest work. And the halls showed Minnick a kindness that neither the Natural History Museum nor the stoic Inuits of Edda had possessed. They treated him like family. Finally, for a brief moment, Minnick Wallace was home. He died less than two years later, along with many members of his new family of Spanish flu in 1918. He was 28 years old. Eventually, the American Museum of Natural History honored Minnick's request, removing the skinned, bleached, skeletal remains of his father and returning them to Greenland, where Kissick was finally given a proper burial. It was 1993, 94 years after his death. Fitzhugh Green murdered Pioktok with impunity more than 100 years ago now. Today, in America, communities of color continue to be treated as expendable, and state-sponsored murder is frequently minimized, rationalized, and hidden from view. We must do what we can to change that and to work for a more equitable society. To that end, please join me this week in supporting some of these organizations, if you can. The Minnesota Freedom Fund, go to minnesotafreedomfund.org slash donate. Black Visions Collective at www.blackvisionsmn.org. And to directly support the family of George Floyd, visit gofundme.com slash f slash George Floyd. Solidarity. Music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Vare, and Kevin McLeod. We are a proud part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Soonish, which is back for a new season. Journalist Wade Rausch brings you stories and conversations about technology and the future, and what we can do to bend that future in saner, safer directions. In the first episode of the new season, Wade talks with futurist Zemei Cascio about the coronavirus pandemic, why we were so unprepared, and how we can get our brittle and beleaguered institutions back in shape to cope with the next disaster. Stay safe out there, take care of yourselves, and in particular, each other. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Roldemunson High School, go Vikings. This has been The Constant. <laughs>